It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Republicans control both houses of Congress, the White House, most governor's seats, and the majority of state legislatures. Still, the party may be having an identity crisis. Today, our speakers examine whether the priorities of the Republican Party, conservative ideals, and the Trump administration's policies actually align. What is the future of the party in the era of Trump? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held July 24th in Aspen, Colorado. It's part of the McCloskey Speaker Series at the Institute. Mickey Edwards spent 16 years in Congress as a Republican representative from Oklahoma. He was in the House Republican leadership. The way Washington operates has changed, he says. He predicted the Republican Party would need to move to the center to stay alive. His prediction was wrong. Now he wonders if the Republican Party is promoting conservative principles, or has it become the Donald Trump Party? When Ronald Reagan was president, very popular, uh, there were a lot of Republicans in Congress who stood up to him on a number of issues. It's not happening now. Edwards leads a conversation with Alicia Finley of The Wall Street Journal, Jonah Goldberg of the National Review, and former chairman of the Republican National Committee, Michael Steele. Here's Mickey Edwards. Alicia Finley answers his first question, then Jonah Goldberg, and finally Michael Steele. What does the Republican Party need to do? Is it on a path that it's going to stay on? Uh, is this going to be what our future is? Or does the Republican Party, faced with perhaps independence breaking off, uh, does the Republican Party need to change? Uh, or is it going to be doomed if it follows this path? So, Alicia. Well, I think these are questions that the Republican Party, uh, however you wish to define it, has been grappling with for decades, really over maybe a century, going back to uh, TDR, uh, where you had a split between you know the populist or populist progressives and the more conservative wing. Uh, there have always been divisions in the party. You know, Barry Goldwater, you saw that again in the 1960s. And here we're dealing with the same thing. You have a more populist wing, especially on trade and immigration, and then maybe uh, what you would describe as more conservative, quote unquote, establishment, though I really don't like that term because it's so nebulous, uh, that are promoting more free markets, uh, economic growth. I think there's a tension, but it's not necessarily irreconcilable. Um, it, you can see what the Republicans have actually been able to accomplish between the conservatives and the Republicans in the in the House. Uh, uh, you've gotten tax reform, deregulation, uh, the judi or judicial picks, nominees, and a lot of this Republicans are very well aligned with the quote unquote conservatives. Um, where you really do see these two issues, as I mentioned earlier, is on trade and immigration. And this is, you go back into the 1990s, Pat Buchanan, these are not new novel uh, factions that are developing. This is gonna probably be with the Republican Party uh, for the next decades, unless you see a bridge or a break off, perhaps. But I really don't see uh, this raising any new problems. Um, where to begin? Uh, picking up on Alicia's response, I, I think it is absolutely true if you go back through the history of conservatism or the history of the Republican Party, American politics, this split between uh, sort of the populists and for want of a better word, the establishment types uh, uh, cuts across the, the conservative movement going back 100 years in different ways and manifests itself at different times in different ways. And I agree with that. Um, where I guess I'm gonna sort of disagree at least to get the conversation started is that um, you know, I personally really don't care that much about the Republican Party. Uh, I'm one of these guys who's always saw it as a vehicle. Um, I never took particular pride in calling myself a Republican. Um, I do care about conservatism, and I think when you take conservatism and you strip it of all sorts of prudential questions, all sorts of metaphysical niceties, and you, you strip it down to the studs, it boils down to just basically two propositions. The idea that ideas matter, Right? This idea that comes out of the Enlightenment that says through logic and reason and facts I can persuade people that my argument is better than somebody else's argument and that evidence matters. Um, and the other thing is that this idea that character matters. And where I think this moment is... Where I think this moment is different from all of these other moments that Alicia's talking about where we had populists versus you know, conservatives or whatever you want to call it, 
is that Donald Trump's version of politics, Donald Trump did not campaign as a conservative. He campaigned on fairly Nietzschean terms about strength and might and winning. Um, he, he only would concede to conservatism um, as part of his agenda as a transactional thing. And that is a perfectly legitimate thing for movement conservatives to argue is that we should have a transactional relationship with the president. He delivers for us on judges or on abortion or whatever you want to, whatever the issues are. Um, and he, in return, we vote for him. The problem with this, and we've seen this manifest itself time and time again, is that uh, because Donald Trump cannot clear either the hurdle of ideas or character, um, the, what happens is, is that we get to this um, we get to this point, like, it's funny, there's a Journal of American Greatness that was founded, it was supposed to propagate the ideas associated with, with Donald Trump, which was a funny echo of the reason why the New Republic was founded in 1914, which was supposed to celebrate the ideas of Teddy Roosevelt. And then, of course, Teddy Roosevelt doesn't win or leaves the scene, and the New Republic switches immediately to support Woodrow Wilson and his progressivism. The problem is, is with Donald Trump, there is no ideological core to Trumpism. And so the only safe harbor isn't to sort of rally around an idea, it is to rally around a cult of personality and just outsource your faith to him as you know, our heroic comrade Trump will deliver the greatest wheat harvests we've ever seen east of the Urals, right? And whenever he does something that is, whenever he tweets something or says something or acts like a runaway monkey from a cocaine study, um, the... The immediate response is to go to ground and say, well, he's playing four or X or 10 or 20 dimensional chess and we lesser mortals can't understand it. And that is a way to hide from ideas and to hide from character. And the corrupting effect of having to defend Donald Trump's character and his tactics is taking a woeful, baleful toll on the conservative movement and conservative ideas. And it is forcing a lot of Republicans to actually do this cult of personality politics rather than actually defend their positions and make arguments. And I think this is gonna do lasting damage. I think we'll get over it, but it's gonna do lasting damage and I'm probably gonna be spending the rest of my life trying to clean up all the messes in Isle Donald. <laughs> I don't know where to go after that one. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think um, it's interesting in, in listening uh, uh, to both of my colleagues here about this landscape, uh, both its history and the dynamics of it. One of the things that uh, I have been a part of uh, in my time is in politics is the actual, actual manifestation of what both of you have just described from a philosophical perspective as well as a more pragmatic, uh, you know, doctrinaire, policy, ideological perspective um, as a county chairman, as a state chairman, and as national chairman, watching how the ground has moved. Uh, and the, one of the things I remember before uh, Donald Trump got into the race in 2015 was having discussions with folks about uh, the, the unsolved issue problems within the GOP that had really begun to manifest itself since Reagan left office. Since Reagan left, Republicans and conservatives, and, and I think they are two very distinct animals within the same tent, have been looking for the next Reagan. And they each had their own definition of who and what that person would be. Because the one thing about leadership is it's definitional. All right? It defines not just the moment in time, but to Jonah's point, it defines those things that are really intangible, but you feel and you know it, like character. Uh, and like big ideas, we saw a little bit of that with Barack Obama. You know, the hope and change was a, a, you know, it was a lot of hope, not so much change. And a lot of people at over time reflected that and responded to that. They responded to the hope, but then they got to define the change. Well, leaders define the change in their time. And so without that commanding presence, that commanding leader, 
who would take these disparate pieces of the Republican Party and the conservative movement and bind them together the way Reagan did, what you began to see was a fraying at the edges. So by the time you get through the second term, to the second term of the Bush administration, uh, you had uh, conservatives reeling back on their heels saying, enough, we'd been promised Supreme Court justices that would overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, that's not happening. We've got Terry Schiavo, the Terry Schiavo case, where all of a sudden now Republicans are arguing for big government to go and insert itself in a very personal family uh, medical decision uh, regarding the life of a woman who's on um, life support uh, and usurping her husband's uh, choices in how to deal with a very terrible situation. You had a big government republicanism uh, in terms of the economic policies. So you had all of these things that began to really eat at core conservatives uh, that really still held on to this idea that we would keep government sp small, we would not spend more than we were taking in, we would not grow the national debt or its deficits. We would, we would uh, adhere to the idea that individual liberties trump anything the government would want to do. Uh, then, of course, for, you know, that's a mix uh, of both the fiscal and, and the social conservatives. But the social conservatives wanted to obviously go another step forward and say, look, on these social issues, family values, abortion, uh, marriage, other things, um, we're still looking for that leader who could bring those disparate pieces together. That didn't happen. And so over time, uh, that base, uh, such as it was described, decided to take matters into its own hands. And we know them affectionately as Tea Party. We know them affectionately today as Trumpers or supporters of Donald Trump. And so that has been really kind of the origins and uh, in, in, in sort of encapsulating what, what has been this arc over time because the leadership have failed to stay connected directly to the people and to occasionally deliver on the promises that it had made. And when it did not, and you have to expect this, I, was, I would think, that that base would turn on you. I'm mean, look, you can lie to me once and I'm going, okay, I get it. You can lie to me twice and then I'm going to look at you kind of funny. You continue to lie to me, at some point I'm going to hit you. And that's what we saw in 2016. Base conservatives deciding enough was enough. And Republicans not knowing exactly what to do with this phenomenon that was rising up. They had no way to latch on and pull that sort of straining piece back into the tent, back into the fold, as they had done successfully in the past. Where does this go? Where does this lead? What does it pretend for the GOP? Uh, not good. Uh, because here's the problem the party faces. After four, maybe eight years of this uh, wild, wild west experience that we're having in politics, the country will change dramatically. To be honest, it'll look a lot more like me than it does you. And they will be holding key positions of power, not just in economics, not just in policy, but in votes. By 2043, the country will be majority-minority. And the party right now has laid down tracks that will make it very difficult for that new majority to call itself or identify in any way with conservatism or republicanism. And that's what's at stake for me, is that I want to be in play. Even if I'm walking around, you know, gumming, you know, whatever, I, just, I want to be in play 20, 30 years from now because it's important to the vibrancy of our politics, but it's important to the nation. Uh, and so that's where I've got my finger on how what's happening now, to Jonah's point, translates down the road for a party that when this is over, and it will end, as all things do, it will end. What, what is the residual? What's left? It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. 
Author Susan Orlean has written about bullfighters, orchid fanatics, and an African king who drives a taxi in New York City. She intentionally skips the research and learns about her subjects as she's interviewing them. Sometimes she asks very basic questions. I actually went to orchid growers and said, so I skipped a lot of science. How do flowers have babies? The trick to uncovering big discoveries is to approach people unlike ourselves with curiosity. In our episode, It's Okay to be Clueless, Orlean describes how ignorance can be a powerful igniter of curiosity. Find a link in our show notes and listen to Aspen Ideas To Go on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast player. Back to today's show. Here's Mickey Edwards. Let, let me pick up on the, that question of the residual and what's left, because uh, two thoughts occur to me in, in that line. And one is that uh, a, as we go through this process of uh, Republican policy now in some areas being quite different from what it was earlier, uh, the Congress has basically given up. Uh, the leadership in Congress, given up its role as a separate branch of government uh, and, you know, standing against the uh, chief executive. So one question is, you know, whether in fact uh, the Republican Party and the Republican... I used to say, no, it's just Donald Trump, it's not Republicans. Experience and, and reading the papers and all that convinces me, no, it's deeper than just Donald Trump. So uh, has the Republican Party given up on constitutionalism? Uh, separation of powers. And then the other part that, that concerns me a lot is, so it's not just policy. It's not just about putting people on the court. It's not just about taxes. But what we have seen in this era, and I would have to say Republicans generally, or at least a lot of Republicans in public life, not just Donald Trump, uh, have uh, supported this or been complicit in it, is we have seen an ugliness that has come out of the American populace. And an ugliness in terms of race, in terms of immigration, in terms of a lot of other things. And, and so I worry not about just the future of the Republican Party, if, if there's going to be one, uh, but what's the long-term effect on America of what's happening here uh, during this presidency and the acquiescence uh, by the Republicans in Congress and throughout the states, apparently, uh, to what we see? Well, I just want to start off by saying I think it's very easy for us, for writers, for people in the stands to criticize what Republicans in Congress and are doing or their lack of uh, rebuke and for not repudiating Trump and for not taking a harder stance. But you also have to realize that Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, if they want to accomplish their goals, there has to be some kind of compromise, some kind of pragmatism. They can't just whack Trump for every single stupid, idiotic thing he says. Um, he'll just blow up, and that will basically sabotage any uh, effort to accomplish their goals, economics on uh, taxes, deregulation. They've actually been able to accomplish a lot. As for the ceding too much uh, deference to the executive, really, I think Democrats were a lot more to blame in, uh, for that. You saw during the Obama years, they would write, write, write laws, ceding to the executive branch to regulate, write regulations. Um, this is the whole origin of Chevron deference, that judicial doctrine that gives deference to the regulators uh, on what laws mean. And I think Republicans, if anything, have really pushed back against that. And you saw during the Obama years, the Republicans uh, sued the White House over the cost-sharing reduction subsidies. Basically, the Obama administration appropriated money that Congress had not appropriated for these subsidies. Uh, a court ruled that they were uh, illegally uh, appropriated and had to cut them off. Now, I think you also see Republicans on the issue of trade, when this, this is a little sticky subject. The issue here is that Congress has deferred or delegated to the executive branch over decades uh, authority to uh, enter into trade agreements, and this was a constitutional prerogative of Congress. Uh, but they've decided basically, oh, 
God, or rather, protect us from our own interests because we have parochial interests and we will, uh, and it is therefore necessary to give the executive who represents the national interest these authorities. Well, we see now where that has gone with Trump's abuse of the Section 232 authorities on national security. Um, and I think what Congress is now grappling with is, well, how do you uh, push back against this? How do you send a message to Trump? I think they're trying to, you saw Corker proposing a resolution, Senator um, Corker, uh, saying that we are opposed to these tariffs without inviting uh, Trump to double down, because this is Trump's personality. This is his character. Uh, if you rebuke him, he, tends to dig in even more. And you have to understand that, uh, being a member of Congress and being a leader of the Republican Party. I agree with all that. And I, I do think the pr part of the premise of the question is, it, 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 there's a problem with it in this sense. Um, uh, my standard line on Trump is that, that he's not the author of most of our problems, but he's making most of our problems worse. Uh, there's a line from Orwell where he says, a man may feel himself to be a failure and, take to, and therefore take to drink and become all the more a failure because he drinks, right? So there's this catalytic thing that's going on. But the problems that we have with constitutionalism, um, it's a bipartisan yeah. problem that dates back, going back 100 years. If you had asked, if you told the founding fathers, you told Hamilton and Madison that Congress would not be a jealous guardian of its constitutional prerogatives, they would have laughed you out of the room. But Congress has basically outsourced almost everything to either the, the permanent bureaucracy, creating agencies that can actually raise taxes themselves, which is a constitutional hate crime, or uh, shipped it off to judges and courts, um, which again, should be, the Congress is supposed to be the one declaring wars. We don't have co-equal branches. Article one is about the Congress. It's supposed to be supreme. It has power over foreign policy, the big questions. It has power over trade. It has power over taxation. It creates the court system. It writes these things called laws. And what we have in this country, and it's getting worse, not better, is uh, we basically have a legislative branch, and it's, and it's a bipartisan problem, where these guys want to be a parliament of pundits where they want to express their outrage and therefore get their slot on Morning Joe or Fox and Friends and, and then hector the executive branch to do things they're unwilling to write laws about. And that is a huge structural problem that we have in this country. And while I, I disagree with some of Mike's analysis about how we got to where we are. Um, I think there was a collective action problem in the primaries. I'm not sure all the Tea Partiers became Trumpers, but the basic point I, th I think the basic point I think is right. And that, but one of the reasons we got to that place is that Congress isn't interested in actually being the responsive branch to the people. And instead, when you outsource this power to, to the executive branch and the, the, the bureaucracy, you naturally create this sense that there are people running your lives who are democratically unaccountable because you are. And the problem for me with the Republicans is, is not that the Republicans are outrageously and deviantly um, breaking from their constitutional commitments. My problem with so much of what's going on right now, and not just on the constitutional stuff, but on identity politics, about all of this stuff, is that Republicans are basically saying, well, we couldn't beat them with the Tea Party kind of argument of getting back to basics, so we might as well join them. That was Michael Anton's argument in the Flight 93 election thing, is this idea of a colorblind America is dead. Therefore, we just have to be color conscious too for our team. And I find that repugnant. I don't like it in any politics on the left, and I don't like them on the right. And so for me, you know, I was asked on a radio show a couple months ago, I was like, would William F. Buckley recognize today's Republican Party? And the only thing I could come up with was, well, you know, Charlton Heston recognized the Statue of Liberty at the end of Planet of the Apes. Um, recognition is not necessarily a high bar. And um, so we've got, we've got deep structural problems that are being caused by the fact that basically we have a collective action problem in Washington that I think Trump is making worse, not better, that the Republicans are making worse, not better, and the Democrats are making worse, not better. And, and what makes that all the more uh, bad is the fact that what you've just described is being projected onto the Supreme Court. Uh, and so you now have that third branch getting pulled into this space 
where you know we can you know go back to the Bork nomination and and talk about how the politics sort of evolved or devolved in that particular case. But again, it, it's, it's, it's sort of that reaction to a Congress that fails to do what Congress is supposed to do. Well, it's also a reaction to a Supreme Court that we invest with legislative and executive powers. Right. And so, of course, it's, we're going to treat it like a presidential campaign. It's more important than a lot of well, campaigns. It is, but the idea is at least, at least pretend that you're going to put people there, put them through the process without dragging it into the political mud space that we often see, um, which makes it, you know, it's now a matter of how you come down on one issue or two issues. Uh, well, Supreme Court justice deals with a heck of a lot more than one of two issues. Uh, but the fact that a nomination is peeled back based on whether where they stand on guns or row um, is, to me, just part of the problem. So the narrative in the country has changed, and the narrative has changed largely because of what you said. The Congress, which represents all of us, did you know that? <laughs> I just want to check. You knew that, right? You still are we the people, correct? So while everybody sits back and complains and groans and moans about the United States Congress, 90% of them will get reelected this November. So stop your moaning and your groaning and fire them. Because that's how you take control. Now, I said that on this stage a year ago. And I will continue to say it until it sinks in your head that you control this process. They represent your interest. And when they stop representing that interest, what do you do? You fire them. And that's the way this should work. That's the ultimate check. That is the ultimate check. So you can sit back and talk about how Congress is ceding control to the legislative, I mean, to the executive branch or the executive branch is taking that control. Look, you give it to me, baby. I'm going to take it. All right? That's how this works. You let me take it every single day? If I came up and smacked you upside the head every day, you don't think I'm going to do it tomorrow? Of course I am. I'll do it until you check the motion till you check the move and the check is at the ballot box and that's something above everything else the congress understands that's something even the executive branch understands although i will tell you in this particular case donald trump could give a rat's patootie whether or not a democrat or republican is the majority in the house of representatives because going back to your earlier point he's agnostic on all of this stuff this party stuff <laughs> I know firsthand, I've had the conversation face-to-face -face with the man. It's not, his, it's not his cup of tea. He doesn't care. It is a means to an end in many respects for him. Until someone explains to him the Democrats will have subpoena power. Right. And, um, but, by the time, but by the time they do that, it's a little too late. And we are in that space where it's a little too late. So that's, that's going to be the reality come October when you see Republicans running around trying to sound like Republicans again, trying to sound like conservatives again to save their ass. And the bottom line is at that point it's too late because we the people have already made up our mind what we are going to do. And that's how the process is supposed to work. But they're betting and they're counting on the fact that in the end, this will fall to form. That a significant majority of them will get reelected, and that'll be enough to hold the House. I've heard that conversation. I'm sure you have too. So this is a game for them, and the game has to stop because it's hurting this thing we call the republic, and the and the democracy that we try to play out with the various institutions and you know other opportunities we have to sort of govern ourselves. So take control of it. That's, that's at this point where I am on this. Well, I think that's what gave us Trump, right, was people taking control of the process. They were tired and sick of right. the, the, there's economic and cultural angst uh, left over from the Obama years, uh, slow growth, and people were sick of the PC uh, atmosphere, and that is exactly what gave us Trump. Yep. So yeah, I have different theories than both of you guys about what gave us Trump, and it had to do with not sacrificing enough bulls to 
ball, but that's a different story. Right. No, right. Um, uh, right. I'll just put it very quickly. One of the reasons why we got Trump was we had a 16-man primary, one of the most qualified primaries, presidential primaries the Republicans have ever had, uh, you know, uh, uh, George Pataki notwithstanding. And... Um, <laughs> And you had, and Trump had a core plural, had this core unshakable Fifth Avenue shooter plurality that was enough in a 16-man race. And, but the real issue that I think drove attention to him was simply that he broke the blood-brain barrier between politics and entertainment in a way that we have never seen. Right. And uh, this creates certain challenges for Democrats that you guys still don't appreciate in the sense that, I didn't mean to gesture towards you, um, uh, in the sense that, uh, the Republican bench of celebrities peters out around Scott Baio. Um, <laughs> Democrats have lots of people who could parachute in at a low, late moment, George Clooney, Tom Hanks, Oprah, you can go down a long list. Um, and it's gonna create a real challenge for our democracy where celebrity and fame can buy you more than arguments and experience and, and, and ability. And, and part of it had to do with the fact that because God has a weird sense of humor, he decided that both parties had to elect the one candidate who had a chance of losing to the other one. <laughs> and one of them had to lose. I, I think Donald Trump is a legitimate president. He won in the Electoral College. But the simple fact that he, if, if not for about 79,000 votes in five counties, um, Hillary Clinton would be president should at least cause Donald Trump and a lot of his biggest supporters to stop talking about how he had this unbelievable mandate from the people and he speaks for all of the people. Under these circumstances, normally, you would, a president like this should be governed, I mean this as an objective and analytical point, should be governing purely by the center to expand his coalition. Right. He's not interested in doing that because his lizard brain is so attracted to praise that he talks about his followers as if they're the only real Americans, and that is really repugnant to me. But I, I want to I want if go back to. I want to I want to go back to your point about the 16 folks standing on the stage. Donald Trump, when he came down that escalator, had two percent support among GOP members of the Republican Party and conservatives. Two percent. So the fact that those those other 16 people on that stage could not make their case says a lot about the turmoil that existed within the party. And, and, and that turmoil, turmoil was something that he expertly took advantage of. What I think a lot of people, again, to your point, seem to sort of gloss over, like these voters just came out of nowhere and they were like, oh, Trump. Donald Trump had a relationship with those people for the last 10 to 15 years before he decided to run for president. That was his audience. They were the folks who watched him on The Apprentice. They were the ones who read about him on page six. They were the ones who saw his beauty pageants. They, they, they got firsthand that flamboyant, aggressive, in-your-face personality. They liked it. What he did was translated his TV viewing audience, his reality TV audience, into voters. And those 16 people standing on the stage who were so expert at voters couldn't even communicate themselves out of an open-ended bag at both ends. <laughs> and Trump went in. And Trump did base politics here, folks. This was not complicated stuff. Little Marco. <laughs> right? Not complicated. You know, so this, when, you, when you're playing at that level, you got to step back and go, well, what, was, what does that say about Trump? Or what does that say about everybody else? And I think it said more about everybody else than it did about Trump. I think it says a lot about both, frankly. It does, but I think in, in the main, those, you, look, 16 people can't convince someone to everybody to gra gravitate around at least one of them maybe two I mean that says a lot about the internal struggle going back to my first point the internal struggle within the GOP because there was no clear identifiable messenger to articulate how to pull these disparate pieces together listeners, we have a bounty of informative, entertaining, and mind-opening content to share. That's why we've decided to add bonus episodes every week for the rest of the summer. 
learn about politics, social issues, and how the guests who grace our stage are trying to improve the world. Subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Mickey Edwards. Will there be a challenger to Trump in the uh, Republican primaries in 2020? There are those who are planting... Yes, I am aware that of some of That particular seed. Uh, well, look, John Kasich obviously wants it. Um, he's laying out the ground to do that. But he went one-on-one -on -one with Trump through the Northeast, and he still couldn't beat him. Um, a lot of people don't like his evangelical style of uh, conservatism or Republican uh, preachy. He can come off as very self-righteous, and I think that can turn people off. Yeah, I mean, one of the great myths in American politics is this notion that John Kasich is a hugger. Um, and I, I, but I think the real, the real structural problem with, um, with the primary thing, um, and it's very interesting if you look at the polling, younger, self-described Republicans and conservatives overwhelmingly want to see Trump challenged in 2020. Older Fox viewing, you know, viewers absolutely want to make him, if not president for life, certainly want to see him run again. And so there's a generational divide on the right. Um, but I think the real reason why Trump, well, if he runs again, and I don't think that's a foregone conclusion, but um, if, if he runs again, normally the way a primary challenger hurts you is by running to your right among the base. That's what Pat Buchanan did to Papa Bush in 92. That's essentially what, uh, 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 you know, what Ross Perot kind of did, right? And, and the thing is, you can't get to Trump's populist right. And so to run from the sort of radical, angry center um, is gonna be, might, might work somehow for the right candidate in some place like New Hampshire. But the idea that, and people forget, you know, the, the system is completely, one of the reasons why our system is so messed up is we've, you know, people talk about how there's so much partisanship in our country. There is. There's an enormous amount of polarization in our country. But the parties themselves are incredibly weak institutions. They used to be able to filter out people. And so the idea that Donald Trump is going to get someone to inflame the rank and file of the Republican Party and steal the nomination from him barring some discovery from Mueller or something else, I just think doesn't make a lot of sense. And I certainly don't think that Kasich or, or even Ben Sass, who's a friend of mine, I'm a big fan of Ben Sass's, um, I don't think those guys have that. I don't think the Republican electorate is there. So I, 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 it would be an important argument to make, but I think it would be a, pretty much a suicide mission. Let, let's turn to the audience, give the audience a chance to get in this. All right, go ahead. I wanted to address a question to Michael Steele. You said we have to go to the ballot boxes. I agree with that. I'm very surprised that none of you have talked about Russia. How can we be assured that our ballots and our votes are not going to be hacked by Russia in 2018? That, that's a very fair question um, and, and an important one to ask. The one thing to keep in mind, uh, however, is that when you look at the election process in this country, a lot of people confuse it and think it's something that's run at the federal level. It is not. This is solely a state operation. Every state has a very different system, a very uh, detailed set of uh, security measures and uh, functions and things that they go through. And, and I'm sure you may recall at various times uh, here in Colorado or wherever you're from, you know, that article in the newspaper that you didn't pay attention to about, you know, whether that they'd have, a, you know, paper ballots or whether they'd have electronic ballots. Well, those all go to the questions of security. And a lot of states are really focused and have been focused on that point for a long time. I think what, when you're looking at the Russia probe, the Russia probe was not so much about what was happening in individual states, but what was happening to influ influence the top line effort across the states where bots were sending out messages and things like that. Uh, so I, I'm concerned about that. And more, reason, more than one reason for it is that the administration doesn't seem to be concerned about it because the states are looking for that reinforcement um, through uh, federal assistance, uh, federal resources, and that's not just money. Um, that's technology and other things that the feds oftentimes have access to that help states put together their 
uh, voting strategies uh, for, for the upcoming elections. In many cases, those strategies are on lockdown long before this point in time. And the fact that this now has bubbled up as a potential concern going into November, and the imagery, even though Putin today said that he's, nah, we'll have to think twice about coming, but the imagery of Putin coming here uh, in September or October, weeks before we're having this very important midterm election, reinforces this notion among the states that they want to make sure that they've got everything covered. So this is total state action here, and I really believe in many cases they've got their collective act together in that regard. And there are signs of people rethinking the the modern age. So uh, Center for American Progress and right. other groups are starting to push for getting back to paper ballots. And uh, that, that's a movement that's gaining some steam. So uh, who's, who's got the mic? Okay. Uh, the discussion is very interesting about philosophy, uh, politics, uh, the interaction of personalities, and so on. I fail to see any serious discussion regarding where we are heading as a nation economically with regard to uh, the debt structure that we have and the debt structure in the developed world. Wall Street Journal? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Wall Street Journal. I think that's obviously a very serious <laughs> issue when you have uh, over a trillion dollar deficits, and I think they just uh, uh, up or revised the projection for this year upward, uh, partly because you had that agreement between Democrats and Republicans. We're going to spend more money on guns, and, or Republicans are going to spend more money on guns, and Democrats get more for butter. Uh, basically, defense and discretionary spending. But what's fundamentally necessary is to tackle the entitlement spending, which Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid constitute about two-thirds of the budget. And they're going to be increasing and crowding out other priorities. Uh, interest rates are rising. Uh, I think uh, Obama definitely benefited from you know the quantitative easing and the low interest rate environments. And that's going to be a huge issue for Trump as interest rates rise and they try to unravel uh, the bond buying program. And that's going to also put, uh, put pressure on the debt and deficit. And that is also, that's going to be a very delicate dance for the, the Federal Reserve. Um, but economically, I don't think the country, I mean, I think they're projecting we'll have second quarter growth numbers out on Friday, but I think they're projecting around five or 6% GDP growth, and you, which you haven't had for almost a decade. Um, and we had a, uh, the first quarter was around 2%, but the, in previous years, the first quarter has typically been a little slow. And I think this has really been a result of the tax reform and deregulation. It, it, what's really important is being able to sustain that. Um, so the one thing where I think Republicans and Democrats, I think it's going to require a Democratic president, actually, is to take on the entitlement spending um, for people, you know, my age, rolling back or reducing benefits. I don't think a Republican president is going to be able to do that, command the political capital to get that done. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And I think that, I mean, the th Herb Stein, Nixon's chairman of Council of Ec Economic Advisors and, a, and, and an economist at the American Enterprise Institute, he coined the phrase called Stein's Law, which is that any, anything which cannot go on forever must eventually stop. And, uh, and so far, it seems to be an iron law. Um, and so uh, the, the real terror is what if his, you know, interest rates go up to historical norms, then just service on the debt just starts to swallow the budget like Pac-Man. And um, you know, Paul Ryan is leaving, basically having broken his sword on this issue. He forced Congress to take votes on entitlement reform, couldn't get them through the Senate, couldn't get a president to sign them. Uh, Republican and Democratic presidents alike have not been able to get a bipartisan solution to this, and there are many bipartisan solutions out there. I'm sure they're littering the floor of the Aspen Institute here. Um, and, and so my concern is, is, I think the economic growth is great, but Donald Trump doesn't care about debt the, the accumulating debt, and um, and has said he doesn't want to touch any entitlements, and so the problem is going to get worse before it gets better. 
And what he is doing here, so, so Mickey, in his setup of a couple of these things, talks about how the Republican Party hasn't gone to the center. And I agree, rhetorically, it absolutely hasn't. And on some policies that I like, it hasn't. But in other ways, it has. The Republican, the Donald Trump is, has the right-wing version of Barack Obama's economic policies about picking winners and losers. The Obama administration liked, liked green technology and solar panels, and uh, Donald Trump likes steel and, and coal companies. Uh, but it's still contrary to what conservatives always said, which is the government shouldn't be picking winners and losers. It's this idea that has sort of been central to the democratic understanding of itself for a very long time, which is that a, a, someone smart enough and, and, and willful enough can simply guide the economy through his sort of you know, Solomonic wisdom. And that has been a, a central deceit and conceit of both of Democrat, Democratic presidents for a very long time, and now the Republicans are just throwing in and doing the same th sort of thing in an, an admittedly kind of ugly, silly way. Um, but there are a lot of these things about not touching entitlements. Republicans are basically surrendering a fight that they've been trying to have for 15 years about actually doing something about this debt stuff. So, can I, can uh, I let, just let me just say quickly, you know, when, when I was in Congress, we, we were talking back then about countervailing tariffs uh, regarding the Japanese primarily and trying to push back. But but we always kept in the backs of our minds, you know, what happened when we had passed the Smoot-Hawley tariffs. Uh, and so part of the effect is going to be, you know, the damage that could be done to the economy from this tariff war that is being launched, which will have a very uh, serious effect possibly. So just real quick on that, it, what, I, what I love about this conversation is it's up here. Uh, we're talking debts and deficits uh, and tariffs, uh, but we live here. We pay bills down here. And you're going to get a bill this November, in Sept uh, September, October, November, uh, that's going to, if you're benefiting from tax cuts, probably will eat into that. If you're benefiting from this 5% from this GDP, it's going to eat into that. And that's because you're going to get a health care premium notice that's going to tell you how much more you're going to be paying come January. My state alone, the range is from 30 to 90% increase in health care premiums in the state of Maryland. We have one player, all right, one insurance company that's calling the shots, and they put in a minimum request for 30% increase. So if you're already paying $2,000 a month for healthcare, which a lot of folks I know are, who are not inside the exchange system, for example, they're gonna, they're gonna see that wonderful tax cut that they got go to pay an insurance company. So that's the upcoming reality uh, in this economic truth that Republicans are going to have to face starting September, October, November as well. And how that then plays into, along with the tariff question, because we see now today the president saying, oh, you know, I guess we're going to have to find some subsidies for those farmers who have been hurt by the tariffs that I imposed. Really? This is economic policy? It's stupid. It's harmful. And if, if these farmers and, and, and other industries were so negatively impacted by what China and Japan and Europe were doing to us economically, then why were they not getting more subsidies? Why weren't they getting subsidies at all? So this, I think we need to be honest about what we're doing here in terms of we want to grow, we want to expand the economy, we want the, the core engine to be about entrepreneurs, the risk takers, but we can't take that risk away from them and saddle them down with future debt and future costs at the kitchen table, because that impacts who they hire, who gets fired. So there's a lot more to this than just talking about the great numbers of GDP. I love it. I'm, I'm there. But I also know what my insurance bill is going to be come January as someone who's already paying a hell of a lot of money for insurance. So, uh, so we're going to take one more question uh, back here, and then, then uh, I'm going to give each of you a chance to you know, make final comments addressing the question about you know, where the Republican Party and conservatism go from here, if, if anywhere. Yes. Uh, Mr. Steele says that 90% of Congress will be reelected in November. What can we, the people, do to help overcome the gerrymandering issue? Well, let, let, let me quickly say something. So um, 
I, I think it is true that uh, you know most members get reelected. It's uh, more have tough primary challenges this time. But remember, uh, gerrymandering is not the answer to everything. There are there's a real pushback. There's just a story in the paper today uh, about states that are taking it on themselves to uh, have uh, independent redistricting commissions. But remember, the Senate is not affected at all. The you know, gerrymandering does not touch the Senate. So back to, uh, I'll tell you, when, when I was in the House, I mean, I, I, I was very much aware, you know, that, that it was the voters, and if they showed up at the polls, you know, uh, that then I was uh, either going to win or lose based on how much they liked me. Uh, and one of the problems that has been leading us to this point, it's not, it's, gerrymandering is a problem, money is a problem, all that stuff. But people who have a right to vote and not going to vote uh, are a bigger problem. So. I, 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 would, I, I think that that's the perfect response to that. The other thing to keep in mind with gerrymandering is that you're looking at the congressional district, but that's drawn by a state legislature and a governor. So if the state legislature is you know, controlled by Democrats, they're going to draw, draw the lines for Democrats. If it's controlled by Republicans, they're going to draw the line for Republicans, which is why more and more states now are moving towards these sort of uh, civilian commissions um, to sort of take that level of politics out of it. Uh, but we'll see how that plays itself out. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how legislatures turn around this November, yeah, if four, they do at all. 14 states, including uh, Ohio, another Rodell fellow, John Houston, led that fight. Yeah. So they've now gone to that, too. So let, let's give uh, all of you a chance to kind of wrap it up. Uh, Mike, let's start with you uh, and, and come back this way. Okay. Um, so, look, these, we li we're living in some very interesting times as a country. Certainly, uh, a lot of us conservatives and Republicans within the party are, and, and I really think uh, Jonah really put his finger on a core principle, and that is answering the question, who we are. And that's tied into what we value, what we believe, and, and how we make that case to the American people. My concern has been for a while now that we stop making that case. We found politics was the salve that, that soothed all the pains and, and anguishes that we had, and we didn't have to do the heavy work of actually going out and winning the vote. So we rely on systems like gerrymandering. We rely on systems uh, like you know, stoking your fears and stoking your concerns here and there, uh, aligning ourselves or allowing others to align with us who are, who are an anathema to everything we value and, and, and stand for, whether it's white nationalism, sort of a slide, sideway glance uh, towards the KKK, uh, and all that crazy nonsense. Um, I call myself a Lincoln Republican for a reason, because at the end of the day, it's about the founding principle on which this party was founded, and that is we the people, the individual rights and liberties we have under our, under our Constitution. That's never abridged and should never be abridged. And that's the fight for me that goes beyond party. And I like the partisan fight. Don't get me wrong. I'll throw down with a Democrat any day of the week. But at the end of the day, when we get up, we have to get up together as Americans. And we've stopped doing that. So I would be kicked out of the union if I didn't. You know, Mickey mentioned my... Um first book, my most recent book, which is a for sale now, uh, is uh, called Suicide of the West, real cheery title, because uh, everyone take a bath with a toaster was taken. And, um, uh, and so a big part of my argument is what I'm trying, one of the things I am trying to do is actually model behavior that I think is sorely lacking among a lot of conservatives these days. And I'll be the first to confess has been lacking in some of my behavior going back 20 years. Um, and I'm actually just trying to make arguments, and I'm trying to work on, on, on open, honest, science-based. The first sentence in the book is called, is, there is no God in this book. Because what I'm trying to do is actually appeal to people. It's not that I'm an atheist, um, but I, what I'm trying to do is make appeals to reason and fact and, 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 and science for making the, a certain case. And that case is, we are, despite all of our problems and all of our fighting, this is, we are luckier than any human beings who have come before us to be alive in this country at this moment. For, 
and I can take you through the math, but for 250,000 years, the average human being everywhere in the world lived on no more than $3 a day. And then once and only once did that change. And it happened in England, um, it spread to the rest of Europe, came to the United States, and for the first time, over the course of just six or seven li lifetimes, billions of people have been lifted out of poverty. And it's because of these ideas that, 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 that Michael refers to, this idea that our rights come from God, not from government, we are citizens, not subjects, the fruits of our labors belong to us, that the government works for us, we don't work for it, and that innovation and hard work should be rewarded. And we don't teach very much of that anymore. Instead, we, you know, what, what holds a nation together, what holds a society together is a certain sense of gratitude. We don't teach gratitude in this country. We teach the opposite of gratitude on the left and the right. And the opposite of gratitude is entitlement, is resentment. And, and this is what I'm getting at when I say that, our, that Donald Trump isn't the cause of these problems. He is the end result of problems that are way upstream of Washington. We live in a time now where uh, bigotry, they do these tests at Yale, it's amazing. Bigotry on, on racial grounds, they do these, you know, these experiments. There's some, obviously, right, in these, some of these experiments. Nothing compared to the bigotry that, that Democrats have for Republicans and Republicans have for Democrats. Um, in terms of looking at resumes from people. If it says, oh, you work for the College of Democrats, a Republican, no, right? We now see partisan affiliation is more important and more indicative of behavior and attitudes than religion, race, or gender. That's insane, right? My, my favorite New Yorker cartoon, my wife got it blown up for me and framed as a present, has two dogs sitting at a bar in New York, or I assume it's New York, drinking martinis, and one dog says to the other dog, you know, it's not good enough that dogs succeed. Cats must also fail. <laughs> and that is the nature of our politics right now, is that anything is worthwhile to do so long as it makes our political opponents sad. And, you know, because their tears are delicious. And this, this is not necessarily as bad as it's going to get so long as the country is bought into this stuff. And we need to figure out a way to teach people to be grateful for the country that we live in. We can argue about, you know, the size of government and how to deal with healthcare and all these kinds of things. But this system, this basic idea, this Lockean idea, is what has pulled humanity out of the muck, which is our natural environment. And we should be, have a little more humility about trying to preserve it and gratitude for it, because it's the only game in town. So I would just add, I think the biggest threat to both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party is polarization. Uh, the polarization on the right is driving it on the left and vice versa. And you saw that with Joe Crowley's defeat uh, in the New York district. Uh, the rhetoric is becoming increasingly strident. And I think this is having a negative effect, obviously, on our own debate and discourse, uh, but as well, as well as our ability to compromise and just get along in society. Uh, I think people who support Trump uh, feel themselves alienated uh, from some of their friends. And I think it's a little bit on the other end where you have the never, the quote unquote never Trumpers or the conservative critics on Trump uh, feel a little bit uh, like they're outcasts uh, if they were to travel to some of these uh, pro-Trump rallies that they would not be accepted. Uh, I think we need to do a better job of listening to people who have divergent or different uh, viewpoints and not necessarily judging them or repudiating them or casting personal aspersions. Uh, they're not bad people because they disagree with us. They just hold different views. So, um, for, for, all, for all their rivalries, which they had, uh, George Washington, James Madison, James Monroe, and Alexander Hamilton all agreed on one thing do not create political parties. We did. Uh, we're living with it. Uh, so uh, that's where we are. So thank you all. Jonah Goldberg is a senior editor of the National Review. 
Alicia Finley is assistant editor of OpinionJournal.com at The Wall Street Journal. And Michael Steele led the Republican National Committee as its chairman and served as the lieutenant governor of Maryland. Moderator Mickey Edwards directs a bipartisan fellowship for elected public officials at the Aspen Institute. It's called the Rodell Fellowships Program. Their conversation was held July 24th in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The McCloskey Speaker Series programming team is Crystal Logan and Jillian Scott of Aspen Community Programs. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. 